Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hello, movie truthers. Welcome to this week's episode of Truth and Movies. I'm Leila Latif. I'm David Jenkins. And I'm Catherine Bray. On the show this week, Jake Gyllenhaal and Yahya Abdelmatin II take a ride in Michael Bay's ambulance. Jackham Trier reminds us how confusing your 30s are in The Worst Person in the World. And in Film Club, we revisit Trier's second entry into the Oslo trilogy, Oslo, August 31st. All coming up on Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. So, welcome back, David and Catherine. Not long since you were last on. Um, and we are finally, finally getting to the Oscars after one of the longest and worst build-ups ever. We've had a hashtag fan, fan favorite hijacked by all the Johnny Depp and Camilla Cabello stands. Jane Campion called Sam Elliott a little bitch. Jessica Chastain became a favorite despite being in a film that basically no one saw or liked. And uh, worst of all, I think there's been the removal of all the Below the Line awards. What do you guys think about that? Great. It's so stupid, this Below the Line thing, isn't it? Like, by that logic, why keep, I don't know, screenplay, why keep director, best pictures, the biggest award? Like, let's just have that. Let's find the biggest person on TikTok and just present best picture in a five-minute ceremony. <laughs> <laughs> And some of them have been quite interesting, you know, things that in the past have been quite interesting to receive. I remember like watching makeup and hairstyling. And even if you barely know the films, you can just in the clip get a sense of like what has been done. And, you know. I always find that those kind of technical awards and the below the line stuff, when you're, when you're watching those award ceremonies, are, whereas they might not have that kind of, the, the, the same level of like anticipation, excitement, because you're not, you're not so kind of clear as to the, the criteria of what people are voting on they're definitely the most educational and you kind of you, you i think you come away from those awards more thinking oh yeah okay I, I i you know that's that's something i should consider or you know like um yeah no it's a travesty of course that they're that they're um uh they're, they're not showing those and, and and one thing i want to pick you up on layla is is this this being the you know when you said at the beginning there this is the longest awards sort of preamble ever I disagree. Every year it's like this. Every year it's 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 a monotonous drone that that goes on forever and ever and ever until one day but, it just ends. 
But Davey, the, the Johnny Depp stands on the fan favourite hashtag, that feels to me like a new level of stupidity. Like the Oscars have come up with this hollow gesture of let's let the people decide. And I think it's just hilarious that a hollow gesture has been rewarded or hijacked by their worst nightmare of that. That's so much funnier than having a hollow gesture kind of hijacked by something marginally not what they were expecting. Um, I just, yeah, I, I mean, oh yeah, no, I, I totally agree. I, th- I think that actually what the issue what the issue is is in the past maybe the conversation has been focused on this a a, a far more kind of narrower pool of 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 talking points whereas now there are even more stupid talking points to argue over (laughs) yeah Um, i I mean the, the variety of stupid stupid talking points has expanded i'll give you that I totally agree with you that the whole power of the dog versus coda beef is just same old, same old Oscar dumb narrative business going on. I'm not quite sure how we've ended up in this position where the power of the dog is seen as this austere, obscure, difficult film versus the fun, feel-good romp of coda. But, you know, (laughs) go off Oscar narratives, people. Yeah, it does seem actually that it is more wide open than usual. I do remember there being one year where it was every award went to the same four people and it was like Laura Dern, Brad Pitt. Um, I can't remember. Maybe it was Casey Affleck. Uh, but there was every, it was the same four actors that came out and you saw Wacken Phoenix do 15 speeches all on kind of various themes of veganism. So it is nice at least that this year it seems like anybody could win anything. Yeah, it's wide open for some of potentially the worst results (laughs) in the history of the Oscars. (laughs) Well, it can't be worse than Green Book winning, I suppose. Oh, that's true. Can I just, can I say, I've never, I've never done, I've never watched the Oscars. I've never, I've never sort of sat up and actually watched them. Wow. my 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 thing is you know every every single year in my in living memory actually no and at living memory and and beyond that um because i wouldn't ever never have had a chance to watch them when i was when i was younger but yeah i always just like scroll onto the guardian first thing and just check the the list of winners and then go back to bed like that that i've i've never actually watched a ceremony so um, this is the oscars is that- problem this is why they're dancing around trying to attract you, David, doing the, the dance of oh, the seven pails yeah. with their, but it's going to be only three hours and it'll all be my, all the starry categories, but they're still not going to get I, you, so. When I get my ticket to attend live, I'll think <laughs> about it, you know, that'll, when I get my invite. And by then it'll just be somebody reading out a series of tweets of these are the winners and then a sort of <laughs> a sponsored TikTok or two. But yeah, it, it's that thing a bit like what people say about the Labour Party. If they go out of their way to try and attract the people that are completely uninterested in them and alienate their actual base. Yeah, for, I think <laughs> go the other way, Oscars. Let's have more categories. Think up some new awards and have it play out for 10 hours. That's that's what the Oscar nerds want. It is. And I, I stay up every... I most, night, most Oscar nights and watch it all live, so... Um, and I'll do it again this year, but it sort of is, it's definitely diminishing returns. All right, um, we should probably move on to this week's films. Uh, so coming up first, we have Ambulance. William Sharp is a war veteran who desperately needs $231,000 for his wife's surgery. He reaches out to his brother and criminal mastermind Danny, who talks him into a bank heist. When the robbery goes wrong, they find themselves on the run in an ambulance with an EMT and a dying police officer. 
So, Michael Bay's return. Was it a return to form, I suppose, David? What form? There is no form. <laughs> I was told by a critic who remained blameless last night that it was a return to form, but I haven't seen a Michael Bay I... since Bad Boys 2. So. Well, I think, I think that there's, you know, I think that there is this kind of enclave of people who, who basically think that Michael Bay in all his kind of dumb stupidity and kind of, um, you know, coked up fury of, of filmmaking tone and style that he has is some kind of like genius experimental postmodern master, master filmmaker. And I think watching Ambulance, and maybe there was about like 10 minutes where I was thinking, oh, okay, there's, there's some grist for that mill here. I think there's, you know, people... People are going to be able to sort of grab a few interesting nuggets here, and 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 and, and you know maybe maybe throw a few um, little kind of mini videos on Twitter saying, "Look at this amazing shot by Michael Bay." Um, but actually, as a film, as a, a, as a kind of an, an entire edifice, as a, as a one hundred and thirty-two minute behemoth, it's just yeah, like pretty unbearable. I thought, like. Um, I mean, hot garbage, um, and I don't know who who coined that term, and, and I, I don't necessarily mean that as a as a as a entirely negative thing as well, because like hot, white hot garbage can be pleasurable sometimes. But yeah, the film the film is kind of a the the, the idea is it's like a two hour car chase. It, it, there is the most rudimentary setup where you have um, the, these two characters who are kind of um, adopt, uh, one one is one is the the uh, the the, uh, the the black sheep son from a family of criminal masterminds. The other is the, is is an adopted African American who has chosen another path and has gone to fight uh, in Afghanistan and has what and has been highly decorated and he's a good man, but has in true kind of Rambo style been returned home and been swept to the gutter and been uh, ignored by his government. So. He needs this uh, quick um, score of cash to uh, pay for some experimental surgery for his wife. His wife actually, weirdly, doesn't seem to have anything wrong with her. She's in, she's in the background. She's, she's really happy. She's like whooping and talking on the phone, looking after the baby. And it's like, no, like the, what, what is actually wrong with her is never mentioned. So like, it's, it's hard to sort of really... Um, connect with his 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 endeavor here and his choice to go to the dark side and uh help his brother on what is met possibly and you guys can maybe like back me up here if you disagree to my memory one of the the most ill-conceived uh heists in the history of cinema like it, it kind of it goes spectacularly wrong but it's like well of course i mean it there's been like a one minute build up of like, hey bro, we're going on a heist. Do you want to come? And there's like, yeah, right. And then and then the next thing, they're like, in in the bank with people with um, clip ties around their hands, and um, and yeah, it's basically a kind of, um, if you've seen the William Friedkin film to live and die in L.A., which has this kind of crazy like half an hour car chase in the middle, it kind of takes that and expands it over feature length. And it's just, it's just so, it's, I just found it very repetitive, monotonous, boring. Um, 
but then there are there are a few little kind of nuggets in there as i said one being this kind of very very kind of hyperactive camera that he uses where he i, I mean i'm really kind of at a, a loss to how he kind of got some of these shots that are kind of corkscrewing pirouetting cameras that are, that are kind of leaping over buildings and spinning around and like going super fast like they're attached to some kind of like um battle drone or something like it's it's like if it's drones he's doing drones in a really good interesting way but that's you know in the end that can only sustain you for so long um but yeah i'll, I'll let Catherine uh, uh, say her piece because uh, i could probably rattle on for ages about this yeah, I mean, there is kind of a bit of a feeling at the moment that, you know, everything has become too green screen, too plasticky and stuff. And Michael Bay, at least, is kind of known for actually getting out there and getting his camera and doing some proper practical filmmaking. But was that enough for you to enjoy this, I suppose? Yeah, I mean, I'm going to both agree and disagree with Davey because I do think that this was hot garbage. But uh, for me, it was like tasty, toasty garbage. I ate it up. Um, uh, you know, it's... As you say, it's it's Michael Bay kind of um, resetting back on form, whatever that form is. It's almost, if you'll forgive me, back to basics. We, um, but you know, I I feel like you're looking for logic. You're looking for logic in all the wrong places, Davey. Like, you're scrutinising it based on, like, was the wife really ill? I mean, this is a classic of this type of film. You've got a decorated veteran who needs money for his wife's medical bills. I don't know how many American movies of this type we would actually have if America sorted itself out and had a proper healthcare system because this is the classic plot catalyst for when you want to have a good guy doing bad things, um... I mean, I guess, actually, the way the healthcare system is going in the UK, maybe we're going to, in the future, get some, you know, <laughs> Hugh Bonneville doing over the Swindon branch of, like, Nationwide to cover his wife's doing, medical doing, bills. Doing 50 loops of the M25. <laughs> yeah, that's what's going to happen. That's the plot of the next Ken Loach movie. You heard it here first. Transit um, van. <laughs> but, yeah, it's a classic bit of screen screenwriting shorthand, almost like the pat the dog thing where to let the audience know that, you know, and a character is good, they'll have a nice, sweet interaction with a dog and decorated veteran who needs money for medical bills. That's the sign to the audience. You're just going to be on board with this guy no matter what goes down. He's called Will Sharp, which is a fantastic addition to the kind of bay pantheon of names. I think Josh Hartner in Pearl Harbor is called Danny Walker. In Armageddon, Bruce Willis is called Harry Stamper. Now we've got Will Sharp. Actually, Armageddon is the classic for this, like one of my favourite Michael Bay films. Um, there's people in that called Bear. I think Steve Buscemi is called Rockhound. They all sound like different nights at a gay nightclub, and that's fabulous. That's the aesthetic we're in here. And you're right, it is drone filming. Um, all of those kind of spinning around that really really reminded me of the work that Peter Jackson did with the miniatures in Lord of the Rings where you're constantly like jumping off towers and spinning through that is so generous Um, but yeah, I believe they they filmed with two different kinds of red camera. There's like the big beefy red camera that is ex- incredibly expensive, and then they had several of these crash cameras, which, as I understand it, means that they're just not worried about breaking them. So yes, they were doing things that uh, your average production wouldn't get to do. And one of the things I think is really funny is that this is Michael Bay's very personal lockdown project. I mean, I cannot stand yes. the Transformers films. I'm not a Bay maniac 
through and through. I think the Transformers films are just dreadful. You can't follow the action. There's no sense of like visual grammar there. But I really like the the basic Barry in sort of bad boys form. The thing that's always held me back from those kinds of films is that they've often had a lot of like fairly queasy, questionable Michael Bay jokes in there that uh, you're at the expense of like I don't know a gay person that kind of thing and it feels like he, he's working with a different screenwriter here and and that stuff felt kind of toned down so it felt like a pretty innocuous night out at the movies to me in in a good way like this beautiful sound mix you'll feel it in your guts um, I would love to see the Danish thriller Ambulansen that it's based on and see what they've kind of changed and chopped up there because it definitely has the potential to be a much tauter, leaner kind of film than it is. Yeah, I kind of feel it could have been like a Joel Schumacher phone booth sort of just kind of, you know, embracing the claustrophobia rather and and being a little bit, you know, know, I think that film is sub 90 minutes and I think this one definitely should have been. Um, but yeah, you mentioned um, some unsavory jokes from Michael Bay. We got some in person last night, didn't we? At our very strange screening that we went to. Yes, we three yeah. were all at the premiere, which feels like quite a, a glamorous moment for the Little White Lies podcast. We'll be out and experiencing Jake Gyllenhaal whooping up the crowd. <laughs> and a DJ doing a DJ set beforehand to a kind of three quarters empty room and just sort of bopping bopping along with his little red beanie on and uh yeah and Michael Bay himself came up on the stage in his three-piece suit and uh and was like we've just done Paris and Berlin and we we're now here in looks at card London uh and then and and then forgets the name of his producer and then and then the most bizarre thing that I that is yeah we the film starts he he Within two minutes, it stops, and 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 I think everyone in the room must have thought, "Oh God, there's been a DCP mashup, or you know, they're going to have to reset some machines or start start it over." But then the the sort of the MC came up again and said, "Oh, Michael Bay's just doing something, but he's decided he wants to watch the film with you all again, so he's just give it five minutes while he finishes doing his thing, and he's going to come back and and watch it." So. Um, you know, so the, funny. The, the man, the man commands respect. I don't I know where you were sitting, but from from where we were, we I looked back up and and because in my mind I was like, that's obviously nonsense. Something has gone wrong with the print, and it, they can't have just stopped it so that Michael Bay can come in and watch the first thirty <laughs> seconds of his film that he's already presumably seen a million times. But no, I looked around and up on the balcony in the Odeon Leicester Square Lux, he was up there like the Pope doing a little wave to people from the balcony. So I guess that was wow. true. Yeah, um, a character, shall we say. <laughs> I mean, a nightmare. I fully would never want to meet the man. He seems like such a tool, but uh, I can't deny that I enjoyed his film. One one thing that's, I think, worth worth talking about, actually, because I, I think we should do so purely because in, in, in honour of my uh, colleague, Hannah Stroll, uh, is, is, the, the, is Jake Gyllenhaal and his... And his uh, crazy ass performance in this and 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 actually like what 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 were your guys takes on it because i i was like you know i i couldn't understand i didn't understand it <laughs> well i kind of came away with two feelings that though firstly i kept thinking of vince gilligan when i heard, read an interview of his that when he was talking about breaking bad and he said like fundamentally i need people to root for these characters 
um, you know, of Saul got of Saul and of um, I can't remember the names, but all of the all of the villainous criminals of Breaking Bad. And the way you do that is you make them incredibly good at their jobs. And people will just be supportive of like crooked lawyers if it's just like, yeah, but look at their hyper competence and how efficient they are. And in this, they were just bad at their jobs. And so I didn't really. <laughs> so I kind of ended up finding them deeply annoying a lot of the time. But with Jake Gyllenhaal's character, I if you're going to make a character be that coked up, clearly, why not just give him a giant pile of cocaine? Because this arc didn't really make any sense. It's like they wanted all of the sort of jittery, angry, uncertainty and nervousness. But they, you know, just just admit that this man is clearly on drugs. It's a really good point. He's coded as coked up, isn't he? Because at one point, a fire extinguisher gets let off in his face and he's literally brushing all of this white powder off of himself for ages. I, I mean, I think what happened there was he was doing, he was going for like a Dennis Hopper in speed type of performance. But those performances only really work when you have limited screen time. You can't hang out with someone constantly for two hours at that pitch. It doesn't really work. And I think it is... it. All of the flaws of the film for me, or most of the flaws of the film, um, come back to this runtime and the fact that you've got so many, you've got all these set pieces, it makes it really hard for them to lift stuff out and still have a coherent film. Like the bit where they they go into the sort of LA river and uh, helicopters are following them and it's this fantastic practically shot stunt sequence and you would never want to lose it but I think they really fluffed the logic of how they get there and why and why it was sort of such a cunning manoeuvre to oh, get one right. over on the cops I was like ha, ha, is it? How? That 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 sequence was really like just on a, on a you know on a technical spatial level that that sequence was a, was a real I mean a, again like I, I think the thing with Michael Bay is, is, is about that he had I think he has this literacy when it comes to individual shots and moments and you know he can pull out the kind of screen cap that you that you're gonna you're gonna drag out and be like oh look at this cool shot with with like you know you've got this really incredible depth of field and you've got like all these layers and it's using it's using you, you know using um, actors and cars and landscapes in this really interesting way but as soon as it's kind of connected to another shot or it, you know, it, it's like a baby, so, you know, who can say individual words but cannot form them into sentences. Like, <laughs> and I, and I actually found like that that was maybe the worst example. But I think that like that that exists not not only across this whole film, but like a, a lot of his back catalogue as well. Like, there's a lot of kind of long, lengthy sequences that just don't really kind of cohere in a, in in a way that that makes them satisfied the guy comes from music like, videos and it shows yeah for sure yeah exactly but i think even even jake's performance in a way i think it that there there is something quite monotonous one note about it and uh, you know like i would have loved to see some like extra layers there some some revelations about him some revel like there's a there's a kind of uh one of the cops who is kind of on his tail turns out that they went to was it criminal cop college together and criminology school he did a couple of together. terms there just to learn about the cops he's a mastermind yeah <laughs> and uh, uh and and even even that really you know the, the, that that's kind of a sort of like hokey and potentially fascinating relationship that doesn't really come to anything it's just a i think on 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 the part of the writer and, and michael bay there's just this kind of adamant refusal to kind of develop things in any 
like any way that was was dramatic rather than like the drama is all about the explosions the cars the guys getting their heads staved through windscreens you know um, rocket launches the usual you know which which i do i do enjoy watching and you know the guys are master <laughs> at that stuff so yeah i don't know but you does love guns doesn't he you... like the gut like the gut the gun fetishization in this film was like if you know up there with some of his like when he's done his like war films fully um, then the sound mix like he's you've got a different really like someone has really paid attention to the size of the gun for the for the foley with the gun going off and all of that stuff so you can feel like the the bigger guns are bassier in your guts i mean i would really if you are going to see this film recommend seeing it in a cinema with proper speakers not on like your laptop or something and even the little kind of like twirling little um uh levers and 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 uh and you know the 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 kind of extra little mechanical things on the gun the sound of those are are even amazing as well so he's you know it's definitely like there was definitely this feeling at the end of the film where i was like i wish he gave the human characters as much care and attention as he is the gun he can't he's a robot he doesn't understand he's like literally (laughs) when you'll have scenes like the wife coming up with the baby and she's sad because what's going on it's like a robot has gone humans will cry now look behold the sadness (laughs) yeah um i mean personally i I didn't know what I was expecting, but somehow within 30 seconds of this, all of the visions of bad boys in Armageddon have uh, came flooding back. And I think mostly I just felt this man has not moved on one inch as a filmmaker <laughs> since I last took on his break. Proud. Yeah. And he's proud of that. He made these little references in the in the film to like The Rock and other sort of past Michael Bay hits that were like yeah. right there in the dialogue. They say, let's, let's, let's be bad boys. <laughs> The cops at the beginning. Let's go in the bank like bad boys. Yeah, and they they quote um, Sean Connery in The Rock. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As if that is a <laughs> beloved property that we could all just oh yes, that line of dialogue. You know, it's 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 for the postmodern crew. It's so they can write their uh, think pieces. I think it's Michael Bay's <laughs> version of a self-effacing joke as well, because one character quotes mm. Sean Connery in The Rock, and then another character is like The Rock. You mean like that wrestler? Michael Bay is humble. He knows that not everyone has heard of The Rock. Um, but let's get some scores on this. Um, yeah. What did you... What, I mean, you didn't seem to come into it with very high expectations, David. So, <laughs> what did... No, I, I think I think it's a kind of... I think it's twos across the board for me. It was just... Um, yeah, it, it, it kind of passed, passed the time. I, I, I didn't have much expectations... They, they weren't really met and I won't be seeing it again. Sorry to sound like an old grouch. Catherine, what about you? Um, five, five, and then honestly three. <laughs> it's not a very good film, but <laughs> I had such a time while I was watching it and I really was hyped to go to a big proper cinema and see a film that was rumoured to be, you know, Michael Bay on his like 90s form. Oh, well, um, I think probably three, three, two for me. Um, I saw it with my friend Yaz. I got a little plus one and we used to have a bad film club together. And there's an improvised surgery script scene in this, which is just so out of like all of the terrible films that we have loved and watched and laughed to- at together. So, uh, you know, not without its joys, but yeah, overall two. 
didn't do much for me. If this is a return to form, maybe I'm just not Michael Bay's target audience. <laughs> but up next, we'll be looking at something very different at uh, the worst person in the world. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The final installment in Joachim Trier's Oslo trilogy chronicles four years and 12 chapters in the life of Julie, a young woman navigating the troubled waters of her love life and struggling to find her career path, leading her to take a realistic look at who she really is. Catherine, I believe you saw this in Cannes, so we're coming up to a year since uh, you first got to enjoy the final installment of the Oslo trilogy. What did you think? Well, I can still remember it pretty well, even though it was a year ago. So that's always a good sign. Um, no, I really liked this. Uh, I felt in advance, I think I wasn't in like one of the first screenings and the advance buzz made me think, oh no, this is just going to be a sort of manic pixie dream girl indie fantasy. I'm not going to enjoy this at all. Um, and then I came around to it while I was watching it. I was like, okay, this is, what this is, is we've all seen the rom-coms like... Bridget Jones's diary where you're on the side of the girl for whom nothing is ever going quite right and there'll be a dinner party scene where tons of really glamorous well put together women who are you know, photographers and artists uh, being sort of slightly shady and she's feeling like on the back foot this flips it around and the hero of this film is the kind of woman who's normally in that little role as the woman who you know, is is the villain, the like the younger girlfriend who's the butt of the jokes at the dinner party scene or, you know, the manic pixie kind of dream shrew. It's like a side character has been given her moment in the spotlight and we find out actually what it's like to be that character for a change. So I thought that was really something that I haven't seen done often enough. So that was lovely. Um at this point in my life, any anything that's showing me something I haven't seen been I haven't seen before is is going to get some points at least. 
So this is like fundamentally a male creation. Um, I mean, it's directed by a man and written by two men. Do you think this was kind of quite an authentic portrayal of young womanhood? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I hold gender quite lightly. I think it's all very fluid. We're all on a spectrum and the, and sort of intelligent and sensitive man has as good a chance as an intelligent and sensitive woman uh, writing a decent female character. I think a lot of the time when you've got men who write appalling female characters, take a look at their male characters because they're probably not much cop either. Um, and... Yeah, I, I didn't mind the, to use the sort of overworked phrase, male gaze here. She felt like a character that I recognised. Uh, she felt like someone was being really compassionate about someone incredibly emotionally immature. And normally the way that we write emotionally immature characters into films is to slate them and say, look, they're so emotionally mature. But it's like, this film went, but what, what's it like to be that person? What's it like to be this person stumbling about, a bit of a dilettante? Like at one point she wants to be, she tries out lots of different things. And I think, again, that's not a character that film generally has a lot of sympathy for. Like film is in love with the artists and the persistent, I have a dream and I will follow that one dream. She doesn't really know what her dream is and she's not particularly talented at any of the sort of things that she pursues um her talent probably is is making is is for people falling in love with her and again that's not like necessarily particularly sympathetic and yet i i just came away thinking yeah this is a compassionate film and and as danielson lee as well as one of her major love interests i think he is sensational as an actor i'm sure will come on to talk about him more later in the podcast because he's also the star of our film club film um, but he also really anchored it really nicely for me. I, I, those two played off each other so well. There was this real light and dark energy between them that, for me, really played. Yeah, I really liked about it, and I kind of connected to a sense, even though I've had no virtually no parallels in my life, of this idea of being at this place in your life where you're just kind of trying on identities for a little bit and just seeing if it sort of fits and almost having like a detached observation of it. And then like, oh no, maybe I'll try this. And is this who I truly am? But kind of the search is in the doing. But David, were you equally enthused? Yeah, no, I, re I really like the film. I, I, I'm, I'm a sort of, I think I'm a, I'm a big booster for Joachim Trier. He, he's someone who I feel his career, I've kind of followed, I, what, like Reprise, his first film was one that I, I covered when it came out in like 2006, I think it was. Uh, I, can't, I can't remember the exact date, but yeah, I, I, it's 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 been lovely to see his kind of rise. Um, I think there were two two films that he made in between Oslo and this called um, Thelma and Louder Than Bombs that would were felt felt like a, a bit more of a kind of obvious push towards a more a more mainstream sensibility that but still that, that was still kind of thorny and interesting and you know um not necessarily not pandering to kind of lowest de common denominator audience uh but but neither of those quite worked and this one he's kind of um yeah really really kind of uh, i think that the, the the beauty of this film is it is really kind of crossing over into as a kind of a rich dense intricate art house film that is very easy to be consumed by a more mainstream audience it's got it's got that kind of 
you know, I don't, I, I, I don't, maybe, maybe, the, maybe the, the comparison doesn't bear much scrutiny, but I think like thinking of like an Amelie type film where you, you feel like you're kind of, oh my God, I, I can enjoy a subtitled film. Mom, this is, this is awesome. You know, like, um, so, so, you know, I think it, it's a very easy, easy film to kind of slink into. And I think the thing, the things that he does and the way it's been made with this quite kind of um, acerbic voiceover and um, you have these kind of little miniature episodes that compartmentalize the, um, the, the sort of twists and turns in her life. And, it, you know, it's very kind of like, um, it's almost essayistic in a way in that you've got these kind of themes that develop and the uh, anti-Michael Bay in a way <laughs> that you, 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 you know, this is really, really focused on the idea of a woman experiencing change and uh, changing her, uh, as well as changing her own outlook on life and her outlook being changed by the fortunes of other people as well. Um uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's it. I I I I, re, I, re, I think it's a a great film. I think it's I I I hope it's really successful. I think it's it's nominated for some Oscars. I don't necessarily think it's going to be in the uh, the you know it's going to be taking home any silverware. Um, but the fact Gold that it's wear, kind of <laughs> goldware, whatever, I, isn't sil- silverware is just the, the the general term for it, isn't it? But like, um, but yeah, no, it's. Um, the what yeah um yeah it's i think it's a really pleasurable and and uh, uh and uh what's what's the i'm trying sorry i'm lo- i'm slightly lost for words here because i'm i'm trying to think of the word that sort of um uh, there's stuff i want to talk about but i'm i want to save till till oslo because i think that like what one thing that's interesting about his films is they 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 they're really good on like psychology and i think that like Oslo is this is maybe more of a kind of dramatic portrait that has these kind of twists and turns that maybe work better in a kind of as a like where you're really kind of holding on to the screen and watching you know really kind of plugged into these characters and how they're how they're presenting the emotions to each other and how they're how they're talking talking to, to each other and accepting what what the, the quite big things that they're saying to one another uh where, where, yeah whereas Oslo is has more of that kind of psych yeah it's, it's very sort of like psych almost sort of psychoanalytic where you have these characters who are, who are engaging these long conversations where, where, where they're kind of drawing things out of each other and I think um, worth mentioning his Trier's longtime screenwriter Eskil Vogt who um, has worked on all his films he's also a direct also a really good director in his own right um, but they have this kind of you know, I, I, it's, yeah. Without meaning to sound sort of too derogatory, it's like it is pop psychology. I think they in that they they they're kind of mixing quite kind of deep emotional observation with pop culture and real things and like technology, cafe, social media, like art. Uh, you know, like it, it, it's it's very much trying to sort of like pick uh, like place place these these kind of bigger existential thoughts we have about our life in a kind of wider continuum of like culture and I think that's one of the reasons why it's successful yeah you're you're bang on I feel like there's a self-conscious line about that in uh Oslo August 31st where a a character critiques a magazine for constantly doing like what would Schopenhauer think about Mad Men 
and it's I I mean we're talking about this film now but it's kind of that idea of like bringing fairly highfalutin psychology to a much more mainstream audience potentially there's mainstream appeal there I mean Joachim Trier was on the James Corden show talking about this film the other night like opposite Adam Scott who's talking about whatever his latest show on Apple is they've got that sort of cro- severance they've great. got that crossover <laughs> thing um and yeah that makes sense because Joachim's a guy who comes from the world of like skateboard videos there's a really fun if you go on YouTube and search 1991 Joachim Trier you can see the man himself skating around because he was this star skateboarder there's a bit of that sort of I guess Gen Xy kind of art can be mainstream thing in there, which I love personally. And did the kind of slightly more whimsical filmmaking flourishes, should we say, the chapters, the freezing time and stuff, do you think that worked well given the sort of pop psychology themes? I didn't need that stuff. Like, I don't think it would have been a worse film if you didn't have the chapterization. Um, it might even have been a better film, but again, I guess it's a different film. Um, it was. It would hold it to remove, I think, the sort of people who get really wound up by Wes Anderson. I'm a Wes Anderson agnostic, um, but that idea of that kind of bringing these literary flourishes to um, an audiovisual medium, like that doesn't always work. I think they get away with it here, but it's a strong enough film to stand without it. Yeah, I think it certainly gives it a, a, a lightness, which, um, you know, in contrast to some of his other work. But David, what about you? Do you kind of prefer a slightly more realistic you know when he's in a more realistic mode um i i, I yeah it, it's i get I, yeah maybe we can get onto this again when we talk about oslo but like yeah i i i i think that i think i wasn't kind of like alienated by the chapters i didn't i i did i didn't necessarily like see that their, their purpose like um beyond just sort of um allowing him to kind of jump quite quite kind of cleanly sometimes to these to different times and different situations um and yeah the 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 the, um the voiceover too does have a kind of more you know it's got that it sort of roots it in that world of american indie and and actually just the more i think about it i think the, the 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 sort of comparison to something like emily does maybe feel a little bit more um, grounded than I than I'd initially anticipated, just because I I do think Amelie does have that kind of you know whimsical stylistic element to it that actually does you know it it, it kind of it kind of signposts that it's like this is this is a, a fun enjoyable film that where we have kind of do, you know we're doing all these kind of stylistic flourishes um, and I don't think it, it I think maybe a film like this that didn't have some of that kind of you know call it like signposted levity but like you you, you it might have been a, it might have been quite heavy like i mean it, you know in the in the in its final chapter is it does get quite quite dark and and um i think that one one of the things it does quite well is it plays those those the sort of like you know slightly kind of uh whimsical tone of uh, you know, I mean, or, or you know, it's it, it's very sort of bittersweet, melancholy. You know, these it, it's kind of like the the chapters. I think contextualize the the dark stuff as a kind of well, this is stuff that happens a lot to other people and all the time, and it's just part of life. And you know, 
um, we can go back to, you know, bad stuff can happen and we can go back to being happy again after after that happens. So I think that kind of signposts that a bit. That kind of fits in perfectly with like ambulance can happen and then the worst person in the world can happen. <laughs> but uh, exactly. Catherine, uh, we seem to, everybody seems to be excited to talk about the next one. So let's get some scores on this. Uh, what would you say in anticipation, enjoyment and in retrospect? Oh, probably two, three, four. Um, I, going into it, like I say, I'd seen a little bit of early cambers on Twitter that made me think like this is going to be a sort of probably something I'm not going to enjoy. Um, this is going to be kind of like a manic pixie dream girl annoying uh, thing. And then as I was watching it, I was like, oh, it kind of is this, but actually it's much, much more interesting. It's a it's a defense of a character who dumps a bunch of people. And how often do you see that in cinema? Uh, and then, yeah, that, that feeling progressed as I left the cinema and looked back on it. I was like, you know, you know what? That is a really good film. That is, that's a four for me. David, what about you? Yeah. I mean, actually, I've got to say, hearing Catherine talk about this, I've read a lot on this film and... Uh, I, I, the stuff that Catherine said is completely put placing in a, in a completely new light for me. And, uh, um, that connect, connecting it to the kind of classic rom-com is something I just hadn't really heard or thought of before. So yeah, I think, uh, that, I think it's probably a falls across the board for me. Um, I don't, I, I don't, I, I'm not sure. I think it's like the kind of grand masterpiece of, of cinema. I think it's just a really, a really good film that I hope does really well. And, uh, and obviously there are, there are kind of depths to it that I have yet to uncover. Oh, well, I, I think I came to it a bit later than most. It did seem like everybody in the world had seen this film but me by the time it came to January. Um, so a lot of buzz. So I was uh, four, probably three in enjoyment and then four in retrospects. So I think it's something that kind of unspools very well. Like, you know, the more you sort of tease out about it, the, the kind of richer it, it, it becomes. But um, let's move on to Film Club, where we'll be looking at his earlier film, Oslo, the 31st of August. Also, the 31st of August is one day in the life of Anders, a young recovering drug addict who takes a brief leave from his treatment center to interview for a job and catch up with old friends in Oslo. Oh, David, I believe you told me this is your favourite film of his. You still stand by that? Yeah, I, I would. I would stand by that. After, after, after. So I came home from ambulance, hopped up, um, you know, slightly sort of discombobulated, and stuck on August Oslo, August thirty first, and uh, um, and and yeah, it was a very kind of like a sort of, um, you know, um, herbal tea. Esque movie <laughs> that, that sort of like slinked, slinked me into my sleep. But, They're both um, set in a day, yeah, aren't they? You it, did a double bill of films set across the course of a single day. Exactly. Yeah. This is the this is the film of the, the shit shit that goes down in a day episode of of of, of truth and movies. Um, yeah. No. It's it, I I I love it, and I and I, and um, I. In a way, it's a, it's a very it's it's a very obvious forerunner to, to worst person in the world in that it it is episodic, um, and in fact, it does exactly what Catherine was saying that she maybe didn't 
care for in, in Worst Person with the chapters. It kind of has that episodic aspect, but without the hard stops in between. It's just, um, yeah, the structure is, he, he is kind of daisy chaining uh, meetings and, uh, and, um, and various kind of activities across a day. And um, this is, I mean, it's all contextualized by this, this opening sequence where um, he, the film opens where he, where, where he is, he is in a, uh, a sort of drug rehabilitation clinic and he's just sort of gone out early morning, put, put a load of like rocks in his pocket and like walked into a, a stream, like attempting suicide. So, you know, he, we, we know from the off that he, he is not in a, in a good place. And then he is like, then he goes up, 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 back up, doesn't tell anyone about it. And then is given this kind of, I don't think it's day release because he's not held captive there, but he's kind of give, given a day out to go and go and apply for a job. And, you know, it's like the first step back to his sort of reintegration into society. And I think the, 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 the fascinating thing about the film is, uh, again, incredible performance by Anders Dan, Danielson Lee. He does this kind of, he has got this extraordinary thousand yard stare where you can just look at his face looking out into like just staring at you big eyes and it's just quite sort of blank canvas painterly almost like he 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 is he is kind of he's statuesque in a way um and uh yeah um and yeah as i was saying before it, 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 it i think this is much more focused on the sort of psychological aspects of of his character and there, the, the, his first meeting is with an old friend who, who basically hung out with him during his kind of crazy days and then has, has actually, has now managed to settle down and has a wife and kids. And, and, you know, he's, he's basically seeing a vision of, of what, of where his life could have, could have gone. It's very, it's, it is very kind of Scrooge-esque in a way of like, the, the various meetings he has gives him this kind of vision of what of the, the directions his life could have gone in um not necessarily i don't there's, a, there's not a sense though that he is he, he necessarily wants to have gone in those directions and maybe that's the reason why he he kind of took the path that he did um he kind of goes off the rails and you know with, i don't without going into too much detail i think that one of the the wonderful things about this film is that it's a film about that that you know you you're focusing on this character and even spending a day with him and seeing all these interactions the film is kind of hinting at the, when it comes to its end the idea is that we we still have no idea who this guy is there are hidden depths to him that we 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 would never have predicted and could could never know he the actions that he takes aren't necessarily going to be based on any rational logic the the human heart is very kind of um uh unpredictable and you know it's it it it, 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 it i think it comes together in a re- like i think it's one of those films that like you're watching it you're watching it watching it and then it's it has this incredible final sequence which just solidifies the whole the whole piece and sort of almost flips every, you know puts everything you've seen into a kind of really kind of rich context 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's remarkable that both in this and worst person in the world that you, you get such a sense that this is just a single thread in a sort of like ecosystem and everybody else is kind of having their parallel, fully realized lives and their personal sadnesses and disappointments and stuff. And this is, you know, any person in this film you could pick up and you could have based an entire thing around them. Well, there's this incredible sequence in a cafe where he, maybe maybe Catherine can talk about the cafe sequence because that's that's... That's a bit of a banger. Sorry to and sorry to force you to talk about a certain thing, but don't want to hold the You mean the, the uh, people watching scene in the cafe? Yeah, yeah, that's gorgeous. Um, I think it's such a powerful film about addiction, but it gets it. It really gets it because most movie characters, in general, it's about somebody trying to do something. Somebody has a goal and they're moving towards the goal. And this film is about somebody trying not to do something. And that's very different. And so it that vacuum of trying not to do the thing that he wants to do, which is drugs, um, and getting away from himself in the way that uh, drugs and alcohol allow you to do, it's a, it's, it's a desire for a change. It's like, I don't, this state that I'm in right now needs to change. I need to have a drink or I need to shoot up, whatever it is. And that vacuum in the cafe scene fills up with his observations of other people uh, as he's listening to this sort of soundscape of different people chatting and you get all of these little glimpses of other people's lives and as David says it's a it's a really lovely really strong strong scene I think it's something Anders Danielson Lee does incredibly well in a different register in the worst person in the world oddly because when he meets Julie in that he he says some he sort of he knows what he's getting into like he knows what's gonna happen and that this relationship is not going to end well for him and he does it anyway and he's great at playing that that thing of someone who knows what they're doing but does it anyway it's what he's doing in Oslo August 31st as well and uh, it's not something that very many actors do very well I think you know we were saying I would hate to hang out with Michael Bay would love to hang out with Anders Danielson Lee and spend time with him I think he's fascinating I only realized while I was just googling him for this podcast that he also works as a doctor and he goes off and is a doctor between movies like what is that this incredible man who can just give these performances and then go off and run a GP's practice in Norway (laughs) Yeah, and he he was on he was on the front line of of Oslo's COVID effort as well. Um, wow. Yeah, and he he, he, he he what an amazing guy. And he's guy. the best thing in Bergman's Island as well. The um, Mia Hansen love film that I had sort of uh, broadly liked, but mixed feelings. But like, just put him in everything, please. Yeah, it sort of makes the worst person in the world more believable that you would let this man ruin your life. i'm just praying because he does have this he does have this kind of you know not like there's a sort of nordic intensity to him and i'm really praying that like please don't make him like a bond villain or something like that or have him you know have his have his kind of hollywood crossover be oh he's he's some like awful bastard who's wants to kill well he did that didn't he I, I guess he's already plays Anders yeah. Breivik. <laughs> Norway for Netflix, yeah, one sorry. of the worst serial killers in Norway. Yeah. But yeah, I see what you're saying. Like you kind of don't want him to do the Mads Mikkelsen trajectory because he's too good. I just want him to be in all you know the Cannes and Venice films every year. Exactly. He 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 is an empathetic guy. But you know, if it's one for money and then one for love, you can't really resent that. You know, they kind of 
buy themselves a beautiful house, Michael Caine making Jaws 3 style, and then they can settle into having a lot of creative freedom. So, you know, they announce him as the next James Bond villain. I, I, I won't hold it against But you. I think money makes you want more money. You People do first. one for them, and then they realize what they can buy with it, and then they end up doing, like, five for them, and the one for me never comes along. I think it's such a trap that I would fall into if I was an actor. Sorry. Going back to, to, to Jake Gyllenhaal, actually, because this is his... This definitely... Like, I'm, I, I think we're due a Jake Gyllenhaal doing good movies, working with good directors phase, a la uh, Colin Farrell. Oh, yes, please. Because it's been a long time since he that since Jake has... I guess he made... I guess he did some Bong, Joon, Bong Joon-ho movie and maybe, maybe there's some stuff I'm forgetting, but like it feels like it's been a long time since like there's been a real... Like, oh, Jake Gyllenhaal's working with a really properly exciting director, so... Not to give Hollywood any horrible ideas, but if they wanted to remake Oslo August 31st with Jake Gyllenhaal in the lead, I could kind of see that. But don't do that, please, Hollywood. Yeah. Or or Timothy Chalamet. (laughs) Oh, God, yeah. Beautiful boy. Um, I, I, I think I think that's quite interesting actually as as a comparison piece when you kind of look at how like overwrought and like melodramatic addiction stories so often are, and then you can contrast it with this. I don't know if I've ever felt worse in a screening because I was in a screening of Beautiful Boy, um, watching Timothy Chalamet play this this drug addict, and it was one of those super serious BAFTA screenings where everyone is in there to respect the work, and I could not stop laughing. I was like not doing it performatively, but I just it was so funny. Steve Carell yelling exactly like he does in in The Office about <laughs> you know my beautiful boy. Oh no no having flashbacks. <laughs> well, if you have. Thoughts on any of these films or indeed on A Beautiful Boy, um, email us at Truth and Movies, TCO London, or tweet us at LW Lies. Next week, Jared Leto joins the MCU as a vampiric chemist in Morbius. Ruth Jones enters into a dysfunctional relationship in True Things. And for Film Plug, we revisit Interview with a Vampire. Movies is a Little Dot Studios production for Little White Lies. Treating Movies is hosted by me, Leila Latif, and my guests this week were David Jenkins and Catherine Bray. The podcast is produced by Ellie Aitken and Jamie Maisner and is edited by Steph Watts. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 